This is a Federal News Network podcast. Ever since there have been building fires, firefighters have had to worry about the dangerous phenomenon known as flashover. Now researchers at the National Institute of Standards and Technology have developed an artificial intelligence tool that promises to help in predicting flashover. Here with more, NIST mechanical engineer, Dr. Andy Tam. Dr. Tam, good to have you on. Thanks, Tom. I'm glad to be here. And let's talk about flashover itself. What exactly is it in the first place? This specific term might not be familiar with too many of us, so maybe let me take a minute or so to explain what flashover is and why it is so dangerous. So flashover is an extreme fire event. When it occurs, nearly all directly exposed combustible materials like sofa, mattress, wood cabinet, and even carpeting in a compartment such as living room, bedroom, or even kitchen can be simultaneously ignited. And because of that, when everything is burning at once, the gas temperature within that compartment would increase dramatically within a very short period of time. And the temperature would typically exceed more than 800 degrees C. So in such a high temperature environment, um, even when the firefighters are fully equipped, the survivability will still be very low. And unfortunately, this kind of rapid fire progression, such as flashover, has been the number two cause for the firefighter deaths and injuries. So we hope that if we can do something, then we can save many lives. And it's hard to observe conditions that are leading to flashover. And so you have developed an algorithm or a predictive model. Tell us what it is you have fed into this model. Tell us how it works. So our focus is to develop a model that can actually be used in real life and real fire scenarios. The idea behind it is to use information from off-the-shelf fire protection devices, such as temperature reading from heat detectors within the building. However, there are two major challenges for this kind of realistic application. The first challenge is that there's no perfect sensor or heat detectors that can withstand this kind of high temperature environment. And typically, um, heat detector would likely stop functioning without giving any reliable temperature signals at around 150 degrees C. Again, we have to bear in mind that the potential occurrence of flashover usually happens when the upper layer gas temperature reaches about 600 degrees C. So this is a challenge that we have to overcome with. And the second challenge is that we actually do not have any information about the fire location, what item is being burned, or how large the fire is. And also, quite importantly, we do not know any information about the opening status of the doors and windows for the buildings. Um, However, we do believe that if our model is well-trained, it should be able to recognize flashover based on the limited temperature information from the heat detector. Being said that, then the next challenge would be we have to find a way to um, obtain the data. In other words, if the heat detector has a certain rise before it quits and you extrapolated from that phenomenon, then that could give a clue that this is going to get really hot and cause flashover. Right. All right. And I guess my question is how many rooms and homes generally have heat detectors in the first place, though? So let me focus on another aspect of it, because each home would be different. 
But when we try to develop a machine learning-based model, it is well known that we need a large amount of relevant data. But for our case, it means that we need to burn down a building structure many, many times. And if we think about it, carrying out hundreds or even thousands of this kind of large-scale experiments would be relatively difficult. And this is because it's going to be very time-consuming and expensive. And also, there is no guarantee that the data that we get is 100% useful. So in order to overcome this lack of data problem, we use what we call the um, learning by synthesis approach. And what that means is that we will carry out the full-scale experiments virtually using a NIST fire model called CFAST. For this particular model development, we select a popular single-family building structure and we conduct large number of numerical experiments with a wide range of fire conditions from burning a wood chair to all the way to burning a full-size mattress. In our experiments, we also consider different opening doors and windows conditions to try to mimic different fire events that will happen in real life, such as a door being opened due to evacuation and window breakage due to high temperature difference. But one thing that I would like to point out here is that we have carried out more than 20,000 different fire cases, but we have only about 5,000 cases with flashover that we can use to train our model. So if we were to physically conduct the experiments ourselves, um, it is going to be a very difficult job, but we were very happy that we have found a way to um, overcome that and obtain synthetic data for our model development. Yeah, I guess that's better than burning down a whole neighborhood to check it out. We're speaking with Dr. Andy Tam. He's a mechanical engineer in the Fire Research Division at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. All right, so the model you know has been verified with real and simulated fire data. How does this work operationally? I'm a fire platoon. I'm going to a burning three-bedroom raised ranch. How do I know that flashover could happen? So first of all, this model is still in proof-of-concept stage. However, we do anticipate this kind of question. So when we're trying to develop our model, One question that we were always trying to ask ourselves is that since our model is being developed based on synthetic temperature data, can it be trusted to be used in real fire scenarios? So in order to address this concern, we have tested our model against full-scale experimental data obtained from the underwriter laboratories with the same building structure. One thing that I would like to emphasize here is that our model never sees any of this experimental data during the training process. So this is a very good reality check for our model and see whether or not the model would actually work in real fire conditions. The results are very promising and we have an overall accuracy of about 85%. However, there are still additional work that we have to do to improve the model performance. So in the following years, we will be conducting our own full-scale experiments with the integrations of our model into the fire alarm control units, and we will test it against the real fires. So you're going to build some houses and burn them? Right. Uh, That's going to take time to build a house first. (laughs) Yeah, but that sounds like the fun part of the whole experiment. And eventually, then, this would be an application that might exist on a radio or, say, a 
a smart device that a firefighter right. would carry with him or her to a fire. Yeah, we envision that this model is going to be implemented in a building structure with wireless fire protection devices. In a fire scenario, we do believe that fire data such as temperature can be gathered by, let's say, heat detectors. And this information can then be processed locally to provide actionable information to our firefighters, such as when or where there will be a flashover in a building structure. We believe that if the um, firefighters can have this kind of information before they arrive to the fire scene, then they can plan ahead for the fire attack and also the search and rescue strategies. However, um, the tricky part is that the exact mechanism to be used to transmit the data to the firefighter has not been decided yet. In general, the research work is still ongoing, but then the emphasis should be that the system itself has to be affordable. It cannot be in the order of thousands of dollars and so on. And also, it should only use existing commercial devices, and this is because we believe that wireless technology is advancing so quickly, and we are very much adapted to it. For example, myself, I can control my thermostat far away from home. So we believe that reliable data transmission can be achieved in the near future, and this is the direction that our research is heading to. And again, we hope that what we are doing in our group at NIST can help enhance the situation awareness and also the firefighting safety for our firefighters. And just out of curiosity, how did you as a mechanical engineer get into this firefighting and fire prevention deal? That's a very good question. And this is because if we look back, this problem is one of the major problems associated with the fire deaths and injuries. I happen to have background and also did my research work using neural network. And then in order to address this concern or this problem in real time, the traditional methods might not be too applicable because doing this kind of simulation of the flight is going to be very time consuming. And the use of machine learning will help us to overcome this numerical bottleneck, meaning that we did a lot of training getting all the data beforehand, and then we come up with a neural network model, then when we use it, it's just calling the neural network architecture or the mathematical formulations, then the usability will then be um, very easy. Dr. Andy Tam is a mechanical engineer in the Fire Research Division at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. 
Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style, and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. 
you're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance in some cases and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.